1 John 4, 7 through 5, 3 is where we're going to be. This right here represents the body of the Lord. This right here represents his blood. This right here represents radical love. Do you really believe that you are loved? If you sit here with any fear of punishment, either now or in the day of judgment to come, you don't really believe well enough the love of God, and you need to repent of your not believing God loves you that much. What a bold statement. For there are a lot of people that when they come to the table, they come with fear and trembling. And I'm telling you that if you come to this table, you're supposed to go boldly before the throne of God. We just sang that. If you're going to go boldly before the throne of God, I'm telling you, you should come boldly before the table of God because He loves you that much and His work is finished. You have been propitiated for and it's my job to tell you what that means. And that will evoke then a response. There's the big idea. You're going to come to the table with boldness and you're going to leave with love for one another. That's what the text says. Let's see if the Holy Spirit will do it. 1 John chapter 4. Be loved. Beloved, whichever one you prefer. Let us love one another, for love is of God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us, that God sent His only Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, well, God abides in him, and he in God. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and by God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Whoa, slow down. Read that again. For as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 
By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Beloved, that favorite phrase of John pops up again and again as he wants his readers to know how dear they are in his own eyes, but more importantly, how precious they are in the eyes of his heavenly Father. These people getting this letter, you, you, you be loved. So therefore, you who be loved, you be loving. That's kind of where he goes here. Love one another. He exhorts his fellow saints. And he's not talking about this eros love, which is good. You get to have that with your bride or with your husband. Awesome. He's not talking about that storge love. That's not in the Bible, but it is a Greek form of love that parents might have for their children, children for their parents, siblings, so forth. That's not what he's talking about. Or even phileo love, this good neighbor friendship kind of communal love. That's not what he's talking about. Hey, you beloved people, you be loving, you have agape love, which is this divine love. It's a one-way love. That means it's not like a mutual thing. No, uh, two people may have it, but it's one way. This is what God has towards you. This is a one-way love that's unconditional. It's what God has for you, regardless of you, predating you, before you even became you. You only love him back because he first loved you. It's one way. It's unconditional. It's self-sacrificing. That means it's not an easy thing, and it's not like it's always pleasurable. It's a one-way, unconditional, regardless of what you do, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, till death do us part. This is the kind of agape love that God has. It's divine. And I'm not just trying to forcing my own sermon on this text for the word love in different forms is found 30 times here. That's more than all the Gospels combined in these verses. He's driving home the point. As we've been preaching through 1 John, he's talked about our duty to love one another quite a few times. This is the third major section, but this is the longest. It's like, are you getting this? You who be loved, you should be loving. So who loves like this? Well, there's only two kinds of people that have real divine love. The divine and those are divinely affected. The God and the godly. Love originates from God. It says, for love is from God. Here we see that this love flows from him. It's natural to him. It's essential to him. Later on, it'll say, for God is love. The text actually says, for the God is love. The article is placed on the God, which means the God is more powerful than the love. So it's not like God describes love. No, it's love that describes the God. This is his attribute. This is who he is. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit don't have to put this on. It's just their DNA. This is what they've enjoyed. This is what they've communicated to the world as they have loved the planet. They have loved those on the planet. But how about this? This is a communicable attribute of God. 
What that means is that God who is love made people in his image who are love. That's what we have been created to do. But there's the problem. The Bible says in John 3.19 that the light has come into the world and men agape loved darkness rather than light. That's right, after for God so loved the world, agape the world, men respond with a love for the world, not a love for God, a love for the flesh, a love for the eyes, a love for that which is of the, the body, a love of self. But remember what I told you about agape love. Agape love doesn't say, well, then forget you. Agape love is one way. Agape love is unconditional. Agape love is self-sacrificing. And God then says, well, I am going to still show my love. And so God, what does he do? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So agape love comes from God who is love. And ultimately it is shown in those who are beloved of God, the beloved. So now you're starting to see, I can't hang out with this God without smelling like him. His image is already burned in me. His image is reburned in me. I am born of him. I am regenerated by him. His seed abides in me. And every single person that is born of God and every single person that really knows God, those people love like God because God loves them. So who loves like this? God and the godly. The divine and those divinely born again or those divinely who divinely know God. Born again is in the past. Loving God is a, a progressive verb. It's this idea of if you have ever been born again and if you know him now, you are a person who loves. We keep reading on. John says, we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. This proves this. David Smith writes, love is the divine nature and those who love have been made partakers of the divine nature. Paul says that love is poured into people. Paul says that love is fruited into people. Love is so connected with being a Christian that anyone who is loveless knows not God. They're not in the know. They're not in the flow. Later on, you'll see they're actually a liar. No love, no K-N-O-W, no. Those are your options. So what does such love look like? You want to know? It's in symbol form on the table before you. It's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in verses 9 through 10, this is that love that God the Father communicated through the apostles. It was made manifest to them. They saw this. This is what they've been witnessing to, preaching to, writing to. What does real agape love look like? Well, don't you for a moment look at yourself. Look at what God has done for you. God the Father, in verse 9, who has one and only Son, the only begotten in King James language, that unique one and only one, God the Father, looked at his one and only son and gifted him, sacrificed him, sent him to earth. Why? 
that you and I who are in the death sentence may be removed of our death sentence, relieved of our death sentence, and have eternal life, not later, starting now. That's the love of God. This looks like the God who sent his only son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? The word propitiation means one's wrath is appeased, satisfied, atoned for, resulting in reconciliation. Now think through that. God's wrath is real. You can see it exercised when he booted Satan and the demons out of heaven. God's wrath is revealed as he cursed the entire planet for all the millennia because of the sin of Adam and Eve. When God displays his wrath, it looks like water falling upon the nations in Noah's day or fire and brimstone falling upon Sodom. When God decides that he's going to display his wrath, it looks like plagues being poured out upon the Egyptians or the ground opening up and swallowing those who are false worshipers in his camp. When God decides he's going to show his wrath, it looks like the Canaanites who are all dedicated to destruction. It looks like the Antichrists in the book of Revelation when they stand against the Lord and his anointed and they are bashed by his rod and his staff. But if you want to know what wrath really looks like, you look at what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. So if you tell me that I'm making too much of a deal of the wrath of God and that I ought not preach it so often, you're misunderstanding the importance of the cross. And if you understand the wrath of God more, it makes you love God more and walk in greater joy because that which was your birthright now because of your sin has been relieved off of your back. And so pause there for a moment and see how the father pummeled the son. You can look at Isaiah 53 to see that it's God who made his own son to suffer. And he used the means of Satan and wicked men to accomplish this purpose. But it's God who put his own son to death. Why? Because God has promised the soul that sins, it shall die. The soul that sins, my wrath will be exercised. And he can't lie. So therefore, he only has one of two options. He either pours out and exercises his wrath on the heads of those who do the sin, or he has his wrath poured out on the head of a sacrificial lamb. His name is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. He's the savior of the world in this text. And then Jesus Christ yells finally, it is finished. All the wrath of all the sins for all the elect are poured upon the son. There remains no more sin that has not been paid for if you're a believer. None. There remains no more wrath. Oh, your sin is horrendous. But the wrath for your sin has either been poured out on Jesus or you will be the recipient of your own wrath. So when Jesus says, it is finished, he uses the same Greek word that is found later in this text. 
It is perfected. It is done. The totality of it has been received. God's wrath then is turned away as he pours it out on Jesus so that he then turns and looks with you with a face with no even imagination of wrath again. No glimpse whatsoever. Oh, how good news this is to those who are believers in Christ. This is not good news for those of you who will not come to Christ and believe. Those are our two options. You want to know what love looks like? Look at the gospel. You want to know what love looks like? Look at the bread. Look at the wine. Look at the table. This is what love looks like. So beloved in verse 11, what's the big idea? If God so loved us, and I might encourage you to underline that word so. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Oh, get a little excited at this. If God loved us before we loved him and loved us by sending his son into the world, if he loved us by coming into the world and if he loved us by seeing the son become a propitiation for our sins, if he loved us by sending us the apostles and ministers and evangelists and disciples and Christian parents, and if he loved us by causing us then to be impressed by their message and to be born again, and if God loved us by knowing us and abiding in us and us in him and sending his Holy Spirit, and if he loves us by granting us life instead of death, if God, he couldn't just write if God loved us. If God so, so, so loved us, well, then what ought we to do? Let it out. Let it flow. Let it show. Man, that's just natural. Celebrate. And if we show such love, what will be the benefits? Well, I'm sure there are some benefits up there. Like, I don't know how the whole trophies and crowns things work. Great. It's all going to be gracious anyway. I'm not going to deserve any of those. And he does smile at me, but he does always smile at me, so it's not like my love makes him smile more because I don't have that effect on God. But I'm sure that my love has some effect up there. And I'm sure that my love has some effect out there. If the world watches us love one another, I'm pretty sure they get amazed and say, need, what kind of fraternity is that? And I, I know my love and your love will have some effect in here because it is just great to have brothers and sisters who have our back. But that's not where he goes. If you find yourself beloved, who then be loving, it has soul benefits on the inside. This is really, really good news. Here we are in verses 12 through 16. You get assurance of salvation. This is an experiential concept that I am his and he is mine. This is really good news because there is an invisible spirit who cannot be seen. But the invisible God that you can't see, he abides in us. Be great if we could do some kind of a full body scan and see his presence there, but you can't. You know why? Because he's an invisible spirit who can't be seen. But the invisible spirit who can't be seen, who abides in us, tells us this. We are already perfectly loved. For you grammar geeks, that's a perfect tense, passive voice. 
which means passive, you receive this action. You have nothing to do with it. And it's perfect tense. That means it's already been done, and now it has ramifications going forward. So all those who be loved, who abide in God, and have the invisible God abiding in them, they, all of those people, are perfectly loved by God. This is the genitive, the possessive nature of God. This is God's love perfected in you. This is not you doing your love good enough for God to say, that's perfect. God's love already exists in you. It is complete, finished, can't be improved upon. And here's the statement. God is an invisible spirit who abides in the perfectly loved beloved, and his own perfect love is made visible as we love. There is visible evidence of the perfect love that God has for us, that flows from him, that is him, that's in us. As you love, you now know. As you love whom? The one and others. The children of God, the family of God. That's what this text is all about right now. Your love for the saints gives you assurance of salvation. It helps that assurance grow. Not as if it earns it. It shows what has been given to you. Those who give visible evidence of God's perfect love give visible evidence of God's abiding spirit. And they give visible evidence of being those who really have faith in Christ and his gospel. Apart from God's love, no one, would believe these things that are in that text about Jesus coming from God, being God, about God's love for you poured out on Jesus. No one would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, is God. And apart from the Holy Spirit, no one would love like this. Verses 17 and 18, by this is love perfected with us. Now earlier it was perfected in us. This is perfected with us. Why? so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. If you read the Bible, you can find texts that say believers are to fear God. You'll find other texts that say believers are not to fear God. And now you've got to figure out, is there a contradiction, or are authors using terms differently? There is a respect and a reverence that one always has, as he stands before the God who is so mighty and glorious. But there is not the phobia that you have anymore. For perfect love casts out that kind of phobia. It's that fear that you have when you think you might be caught. That fear that you have when you realize, oh man, and if I get caught, there may be consequences to come. Friends, you've already been caught. And the consequences have already been poured out on you who are in Jesus Christ upon Jesus Christ. So there is no reason for you to walk up to the table wondering, have I confessed my sins enough? No. Come to the table. Have I, have I loved my wife as I ought? No. Come to the table. Have I put a guard over my mouth that my, sin, my mouth may not sin against people? No. And even if you have... Your mind and your thoughts are wrong anyways. Which of the commandments have you ever kept good enough? None of them, but it's not based on you. His perfect love for you has been poured out for you so much so that his love is perfected in you. And look at that phrase. 
as he is, so be you, so are you, beloved, in this world. This is who you are in Christ Jesus. Your identity is a saint, a beloved saint. Oh man, you don't have fear any longer of that judgment day. And you don't have fear any longer that punishment may be merited out to you now. For punishment is this vengeful retribution for you who have done wrong. Oh, he may love you so much that he allows pain to come into your life, but it's never punitive. It's always this gracious display of his love to help you grow in your new identity in Jesus Christ. Paul writes, For we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but we have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Or I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. That is a wonderful expression. Boldness in the day of judgment? According to some, the saints will not be in the day of judgment then what use is boldness in the day of judgment? As I read my Bible, we shall all be there, and we shall all give an account unto God, and I, I shall be glad to be there, to be judged for the deeds done in my body. Not that I hope to be saved by them, but because I shall have a perfect answer to all accusations on account of my sin. Who is he that condemns? I will say, it is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even right here, right at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for me. That's the boldness that we can have. So, not, so by loving, we grow in assurance. By loving, we grow in boldness before God and fearlessness. And by loving, we grow in humility. That's verses 17 and 18. And not for a moment do we ever say, any of this is because I love him. Earlier in the text it says, what does love look like? It's not that we love God, but that he loved us. And here it makes sure that you understand we only love, why? Because he first loved us. Anything he has done for us or anything he does through us is only in response to his love. Is this what you've heard? Do you really believe this? Well, then we end with the last few verses. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. But then there's other people down here who learn to say, oh, I love your law. I love your commandments. And they're not even burdensome to me. I think we end this sermon today by talking about three groups of people instead of two. And so now I'm really messed up because we got, I don't know who's who. So you're not going to be happy with what I say to you. And you're not going to be happy with what I say to you. But you guys in the middle... This is a good day for you. So here we go. Three groups before us. Group number one. Your song in life is, Oh, how I love myself. I am so agape committed to myself. If you want to see me sacrifice for me, watch this. It is one way, because I'm not concerned about anyone except me. Oh, and it's unconditional. There's nothing anyone can do to cause me not to love me more. I'm really good at loving me. After all, that's what my doctor told me to do. i got to love myself. Well, you hate God, whom you cannot see. You hate God's commandments, and you're really not impressed. You hate the saints. Those Christian people are weird. At least you're honest. You're not playing word games. 
and you're lost. And so if anyone here finds themselves characterized by an agape for themselves, there is a need for you to see your sin, for you to see God's wrath, to you, for you to see that it's not going to go well with you, for you to fear of punishment today and the day of judgment tomorrow. There is a need for you to know, believe, and confess. And when we take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, if that's you, and you want to receive the love of God, today is the day of salvation. And I've asked one of our elders, uh, Dr. Weathers, when people are coming forward to receive the elements, if you would like to call upon Jesus and be saved today, would you meet him at the back two doors? And he would be glad if you're a man to, to lead you to know Christ as your Savior. And if you're a woman, we will grab another godly lady and together they will be able to tell you about how much God loves you and what you have to do to earn his salvation. No, you don't earn it. You just receive it. That's group one. Group two. Liars. You sing, oh, how I love Jesus. But like Judas, you actually hate him. You can't stand his lordship in your life. You don't like his rule. You don't like his commands. You're dishonest and you're lying to yourself and to others by what you're saying with your mouth. For you too, there's a need for you to see your sin. Don't be impressed by your statements of how you love Jesus. And for you too, Dr. Weathers and maybe others will be waiting in the back. You're just as lost, even though you have your religious vernacular, as these people who aren't playing religious games. So instead of coming to the table and proclaiming, oh, how I know the love of God for me, and oh, how I love him back in return, don't. Let this be the day of your salvation. Today. But group three. You guys, you see God's commandments. You recognize you've heard this over and over again from Moses through the Gospels, through the book of John, and this is the big one, that you're to love God by loving your brothers and sisters. You get it. And you see your sin. You are not those who deny it. You are not those who go, oh, God, I thank you that I'm in the middle two sections and I'm not a sinner like them people or them people. All you got to do is you're just standing there looking before the temple going, oh, be merciful to me, a loveless sinner. That's you. And you see God's anger too, but you see Jesus' work of propitiation. And you found yourself knowing and believing and singing. And now, for some reason, there's joy in your heart because you know that sin was gross, but that Savior was grand. And you start singing, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me. All around me is the current of your love leaning onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. That's one of the songs that you sing. You love God who you cannot see. You love his commandments. They're not burdensome to you. As a matter of fact, if you could just show love to your brothers and sisters right now, there's something inside you that says, show me how I want to do it. 
but you love God and you love your brothers and sisters and you love his commandments and his standard of holiness so much that you have an inner God-produced pang, a pain. You want to love them more than you do. You actually want to love them physically and emotionally with your mouth and with your possessions like Jesus would. You want to do what you ought. You want to practice righteousness. And so you confess your sins quite often. But it doesn't bring fear into your life because even your confession has nothing to do with his granting of cleansing to you. He did his work of atonement and propitiation before you even existed. Now we confess to experience maybe a fresh washing or a reunion or just we want another kiss. We confess our sins and then we get up and we say, Oh God, I want to be an imitator of you. This is what you ought to do. The ought is there. The command is there. Paul said in Ephesians, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. And so you're going, oh, I want to respond as did Ruth and love my elder Naomi. Or you respond, oh, I want to be like David's mighty men and I just want to go encourage my brother by giving him something he doesn't deserve. But I just want to love him by going and getting him some of that water. Or you respond maybe as did Nathan to David who said, ooh, ooh this is going to hurt but I love my brother and my sister too much to let sin win. And I've got to go and have some tough words followed by grace. But this is grace for me to go have those tough words. I don't love my brother or sister if I'm not willing to confront as Nathan did David. Or maybe you respond as did Hosea to Gomer when Hosea saw that spouse and said, you have done me wrong, but now watch this as I pursue not only your physical well-being and your marital well-being and your children's well-being, but watch as I come after your heart. And so maybe you're that spouse who then gets to say, watch this display of one-way, covenantal, undeserved, self-sacrificial love. Oh, we get to respond maybe as the father did to his two rebels. In the story of the prodigal son, as the father sees those sons who are both Prodigals, One just is a little better looking than the other one in the way he sins. But neither of them share the father's love. And he goes out after both of them, just refusing to let sin have its way with those boys. Or maybe your way of showing love is like Martha, who, yes, we know how Jesus said, why don't you just sit here and be a little bit like Mary, but let's not throw Martha into the deep and just leave her drowning. She was doing what? eager to use her gifts of hospitality to serve the most important man in her life. Maybe you're going to respond as did Barnabas, who when he saw that Paul was being done wrong, went and loved him and said, I can't wait to restore you and help you grow. And then later when he saw Paul doing Mark wrong, in my view, he went after Mark and said, watch this as I restore you and help you grow. This is what we see in 1 Corinthians 13 love. This love for one another, this agape love that is patient, kind, not envious, not boastful, not arrogant, not self-centered, and it's not rude. It's courteous. Doesn't insist on its own way. Quit being irritable. Don't be resentful. Bear all things, hope all things, endure all things, because this kind of love just keeps going on. It never ends. 
or maybe we're talking about the love of Jesus displayed in Philippians 2. Let this mind of Christ be in you, and let there be no selfish ambition. Humble, counting others more significant, considering others' interests, emptying, serving, dying. Oh, what a family this is as we guard our minds, thinking the best of each other. Guard our mouths, speaking truth, encouragement, holding our tongue, kindness, courtesy, and sometimes gracious confrontation. Investing our time together, opening our homes for one another, investing our talents and our spiritual gifts. This is what it means to keep our vows. And if you think about those vows, they're only, do you recognize the love God has for you? And now, those last two. Will you practice them here? It's your five vows of church membership. And you who do such, here or here, come to the table. Come boldly. Come skipping. Oh, yes, have reverence and awe. For our God's awesome. He's not awful to you. He's awful to those who don't bow the knee. But oh, how those who kiss him, who love him from within, because he's planted that love. As he picks up little children in his arms, he picks you up in his arms as you come to the table today. Know you're perfectly loved. Know that you are now on earth as he is. Know that there is no punishment for you today. And in the words of John MacArthur, you do not need to fear the return of Christ. You get to long for it. You get to say with John, even so, come on, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We have no fear of judgment. We have no fear of standing before the throne of God, the tribunal. We can go there with the same confidence Jesus has in the presence of God. Why? Because we're covered with the righteousness of Jesus. And when we get there, we're going to be received as children of God, as brothers of Jesus Christ. And he's never ashamed to call us his brother. It's time to come to the table. Humble, happy, bold. And then we leave the table doing what we ought, keeping those commands that are not burdensome to us, practicing that love on the inside, especially to those in the household of faith.